another episode of the Women in Oxford's History podcast. I'm Bethany. And I'm Alice. And this month we'll be looking at the life of another woman who has contributed to Oxford's history. So this month we're joined by Sneha Krishnan, who's a JRF in Human Geography at St John's College. And she's going to talk to us about Dorothy De La Haye, who is a really interesting character. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So if we could just start with a little bit about her early life. Um, so Dorothy um, De La Haye founded the first women's college in um, what was then called Madras, and it's now called Chennai in the southeast coast of India. I think she's an important character because, because of that achievement for having founded the first women's college in Chennai. Um, she was born in 1884 in Cheshire in England. We don't know how exactly she came to Oxford. I suppose her father, who was a clergyman, must have moved to Oxford because we know that she went to Oxford Girls High School and then on to St Anne's. Do you, do you know what she studied there? She studied history, modern history. And yeah. then she obviously afterwards had this instance where she ended up moving to India. Do we know anything about how, how she did that? Yeah, we do actually. So her brother Clement, Clement de la Haye, was, he was educated at Keeble actually and went out to India as, as, as many hundreds of, of men and women did at that time and was principal of a college called Newington College also in Madras and Dorothy went out for a summer just to visit him. So we have pictures of, of, of her from that summer it's clear they took a nice long vacation right so they went sailing up up some river they went to Mandalay so it wasn't just just India. It sounds like she had she had a nice little trip and then it, um, we're told she, she was at a garden party where the governor of Madras was was around as, as much as anybody else and he asked if she might be interested in hanging around and founding a women, women's college. And she just said yes. Brilliant. As one does. <laughs> As you do, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Was there, could you maybe talk a bit about the historical context of that? So was yeah. it common for women like her to be going out to India and, and doing things like founding women's colleges? So by that time, I'd say yes. Um, I think it was certainly a career option, particularly for unmarried women like herself. She mm. was 30 and unmarried um, mm. when she went out to India. Most of the women I found went out as missionaries of some sort. Um, so the London Missionary Society and the Church Missionary Society sent out quite a few. I think Dorothy was rare in that she wasn't attached to that sort of organization, right? Um, she went went purely because of family connections, really, and happened to, to sort of found a college. But actually incredibly common by that point. Both, both British and American women were mm. going, going to India to run colleges, hospitals, schools for girls participating in social reform. So could you maybe tell us actually a little bit about what it, what the school was like and, and how it was run? The Queen Mary's College, when she founded it, was, was um, mainly a, a sort of day college in that people from the city came and went, but there was also a hostel. Um, so she appropriated an old um, colonial mansion and turned it into a hostel for girls. What we do know of it is that um, it started as a fairly small community, something like five or six girls even, and they didn't have um, science labs, they, so they, they only taught the humanities to begin with. Um, we know that Dorothy went, went to the trouble of arranging transportation to a men's college nearby so they could observe the labs. I'm not sure when they were actually allowed to start doing things in labs. But, but it sounds like she was, she was sort of committed to gradually building this, this place up. By the time she left the college in the 50s, it had become a sort of fully functional you know, institution of higher education that offered BA degrees you know, with, with a sort of three-year program, you know, much like the Oxford system. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was an extremely prestigious institution for women until about the 70s. Mm-hmm. I think some of the, um, you know, most prominent women from southern India actually were educated at that place, really. Mm-hmm. And I've interviewed alumni who, who think of it extremely fondly. Could you talk maybe about this family tragedy that happened and, and kind of what that can tell us about the world that, that they were living in? 
Clement, Clement Delahaye was also a, a school teacher, college principal, went out and founded um, Newington College. However, what happened to, to Clement was that um, in 1919, he was shot at close range by, by a student in his college with a shotgun who, who said to have stolen the shotgun from, from the reserve of, of guns they had because they were teaching these men how to shoot mm-hmm. in order to make them you know, good brown gentlemen. Clement was shot at close range and killed, and then the student was subsequently acquitted of the murder, right, which is extremely, you know, odd in the in in India's imperial context because, you know, by 1919 it was it was extremely rare that that a brown man would be acquitted of the murder of, of a white man. Um, however, this this came about because because he managed to cleverly destroy the weapon, so there was no evidence. However, I think this is this is something that the family took, you know, extremely close to heart because so Clement's wife was also called Dorothy, but the two Dorothys returned to England. To, to sort of settle matters, so to speak. When Dorothy came back, we're told that she slept with a gun under her pillow. And I don't know how, how true this story is. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that appears in, in student reminiscences of, of Queen Mary's College. But we're told that she, she once stopped a burglar entering, for instance, mm-hmm. um, with this gun. But that's, I think, suggestive of the general sort of racial anxiety of, the, mm-hmm. of that context. While nobody really knew what the motive for the murder was, the speculation was that Clement had been, you know, extremely vocally racist. And it's, it's not out of the way to think, you know, that might have been true. So he's said to have called the student in question a barbaric Tamil. I think that suggests the sort of, you know, racial anxiety in which that context was really immersed. Colleges in general were also places of, of you know, massive racial anxiety and, and where questions around imperialism and anti-colonialism were sort of bubbling up in the early 20th century. Um, so, for instance, again, Dorothy left so few papers that we don't know what she was up to, but um, her contemporary who founded a Christian college for women at the same time wrote a notorious book called Lamps in the Wind about young Indian women as these hapless creatures who had to be rescued by English women and their you know, strong moral hand of guidance. That was, was a fairly typical you know, understanding of, of young womanhood at that time as it comes through from you know, various government documents of that time and so on as well. And we know, of course, that Indian feminists struggled very long and hard with British feminists on questions of this kind. So I think that kind of talks to the difficulty of studying these sort of imperial women and what it means to look at their lives. Could you could you talk a bit more about that? Um, I think um, imperial women are really tricky to study because mm-hmm. on the one hand, a lot of the historiography that already exists is unanalytically bi- biographical in that mm-hmm. it's it's literally just she was born here and then went there and then, then yeah. did this and that. And I think it's also really hard to study them you know, from a sort of critical post-colonial point of view, mainly because, you know, there's, there's not that, that much good to say about a good good number of them, to be mm-hmm. honest, yeah. right? For instance, you know, Dorothy's counterpart, Eleanor, who, who left behind, you know, a shocking amount of, of material mm-hmm. for women at that time, was plainly racist and imperialist, um, but called herself a feminist at, at different times, as, as many British feminists did at that point. Now, I think the reason to study these women has to do with um, the complexity of, of, you know, the relationships they built while they were, um, you know, in, in these countries doing what they did. Um, because in Dorothy's case, for instance, on the one hand, we have these accounts of her as a sort of firm, hard-headed principle, right? For instance, um, we know that, you know, she built the hostels that, that she um, instituted sort of functioned a bit like panopticons, right? So she mm-hmm. had the room from which she could see everybody else's window. And she would clap loudly 
to have the students um, you know shut off um, their lights and go to sleep um, so it's all you know this this weird controlling mm-hmm. you know um, imperial woman trope in addition to which we know that she didn't fight caste at all in that um, the hostel which is you know typical you know british colonial strategy of that time right appease the elites um in order to keep going so it had eight different divisions at one point for different mm-hmm. castes right including a separate area for for europeans so for instance she she did not fight that kind of segregation but at the same time what's interesting to me is that she built really close relationships with the people she employed so i was i was really surprised and kind of touched to find that after she left india um she continued to pay pensions for her driver and his family and there's there's a fairly elaborate you know set of letters um in which she corresponds in great detail not only with her driver but um with his wife and his son especially after his death and there's a huge amount of really personal talk mm-hmm. um so they tell him about you know the driver's struggles with alcoholism he um writes these long confessional letters about his sinful horrible life mm-hmm. um to her and she responds in great detail so she was clearly a sort of close confidant to this man right and she's very careful about wanting to make sure she pays an adequate amount to his him and his family mm-hmm. and she's conscious of the fact that the prices are rising in chennai and life in chennai has changed since she's left and so on which suggests to me again that a lot of these women perhaps built surprisingly close relationships mm-hmm. across racial boundaries which is i mean to to a certain extent this is a well known factor historians right i mean a lot of these people went out expecting to sort of hold a racial boundary in a certain way and those boundaries never really held but i think the reason to study these women is precisely to unsettle you know mm-hmm. some of those those narratives mm-hmm. um and to think a little bit about how everyday life often functioned quite differently from the official you know narrative mm-hmm. so eventually she she leaves the college do we know what she went on to do afterwards um yeah so she was principal of, of a school for anglo indian children and from the few letters i've read about that sounds like she was quite passionate about the um the predicament of of mixed race children again um i guess we come back to the question of falling into different categories seems sympathetic to to not being either and did she eventually uh, go back to england or did she stay in india she did she returned to england um and i understand she was actually quite close to her family and um seems to have died a peaceful death in england do we have much of a sense of what her personal relationships were like or what she was yeah. kind of like as a person Well, um her great nephew called her a saint when when we talked about this. Um but I suspect he has a somewhat colored perspective yeah. by the fact that he's never met her. Yeah. Um but those who have met her whom whom I've um spoken to and and whose letters with her I've read, I think it seems as if she was actually really close to to her nieces and nephews and um seemed to want to sort of keep the family network quite close together. Mm-hmm. So family scattered at some point in the 40s or 50s and were in England, Canada and South Africa. but it sounds like she kept up correspondence with all branches of the family mm-hmm. um seems to have been a sort of generous kind aunt that people could come stay with who sent money to nieces and nephews mm-hmm. in need and so on so she sounds like you know a generous and kind if sort of firm person um sometimes reading her letters is a bit like reading um one of those enid blyton books where mm-hmm. you have you know the character who's who's you know very british in some ways and that you know she's she's full of rules and horrible mm-hmm. you know um strictures about just about everything which helps me think of her as an imperial woman in a quintessential sort of way yeah. um but at the same time she seems to have been sort of warm and kind and i think you know quite committed to keeping her family close 
So you mentioned that you've actually got a really interesting connection to her because you, you've been able to read her letters. Could you talk yeah. a bit about how you kind of came to discover her in the first place? Um, yeah, uh, so my work really isn't on imperial women at all in that I work on college girls in, in southern India. Um, so I had quite a bit on Women's Christian College, um, which was founded ar- around the same time as Queen Mary's, one year after. But I didn't have anything on Queen Mary's at all. And I was kind of surprised by this because Queen Mary's was the first women's college in the city. And it seemed as if, you know, um, the British Library should have more material on, on this college and on, um, and on Dorothy De La Haye herself. Um, but there was, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. So after about seven years of hunting, I came upon, well, I, I discovered that, that her great nephew was called Matthew. And um, literally searched for him on Facebook out of sheer desperation last <laughs> summer and figured that we had some mutual friends. And from them, I found out that Matthew had passed through Oxford doing a master's degree at some point. So it seemed as if I had a connection to her world. So Mm. I asked a friend for an introduction and was met with with incredible generosity. I think, to be honest, um, the family are quite keen to have her story told um, because she seems to have been much admired and loved. But yeah, I think this is this is the stuff about finding archives that I enjoy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh-huh. And the yeah. difficulty of kind of get accessing these women's lives yeah. and evidence of it can often be quite difficult. And it's shocking nobody thought she was important enough to put into an archive. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing to yeah. talks about what we what we value as historical evidence. I guess absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, what do you think Dorothy's legacy is? I think a couple of different things. Um, for one, Queen Mary's College itself. The college has unfortunately fa- fallen to um, you know, a certain amount of ruin in that there isn't funding enough to maintain it. And unfortunately, it's, it's not what it used to be. But I think Queen Mary's educated at least three generations of, of extremely successful Indian women. It would be kind of unfair to not, not count that as, as, as an important part of her legacy. I think what's interesting to me, Queen Mary's voice, is that women who didn't meet her still remember her in, in a certain mm-hmm. sense, and that there's an institutional memory of her as having been, you know, such an important, you know, all-consuming figure in the college. Dillahay's principle seems to have sort of occupied everyone's mind mm-hmm. um, for a very long time, and I think she did quite a lot for women's education in that she was instrumental in thinking about curricula for women, what women should be studying, and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's it's perhaps an interesting fallout of the whole curriculum debate in Oxford at the time, yeah. but women like her really pushed for an equal curriculum um, for women on par with men at that point. She she organized um, sort of little trans, transport rides, so horse carts, because nothing else was available, um, down to the men's college to make sure her women had access to um, you know facilities that, that the college could not afford to provide them, for instance. Um, so I think she did quite a bit to sort of jumpstart women's education, um, which is an enormous you know aspect of her legacy. But secondly, I think the reason why I've been interested in her beyond... Queen Mary's and why why reading her letters has been important for me mm-hmm. is to think a little bit about how these transnational connections were maintained after the end of colonialism in an administrative sense. Um, in that, I don't think. I mean, given that a lot of these women spent up to you know twenty thirty years in in India, they couldn't stop seeing it as home in a certain sense. Yes, and even after that, they sort of come back home. They kept close connections to India. Mm-hmm. So. Dorothy um, kept close connections with her college, but um, you know, as as the sort of thing with the driver suggests, um, she also kept you know in close touch with with um, you know people that she knew in in Madras in general. Um, she was um, the college was not not a Christian college, but she was a committed Anglican, and um, she stayed in touch with the Church of South India, which succeeded the Anglican Church um, in that region. So, in a lot of ways, I think she's one of those interesting figures who 
so it seems to unsettle that boundary of you know the moment of independence being the time when all the british people leave because um they'd been there for so long they couldn't they couldn't fully leave really so thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about dorothy thank you very much thank you for listening to women in oxford's history join us again next month when we'll explore the life of another woman in oxford's past